Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The show is about to begin. Welcome to another episode of Concerts That Made Us. I'm your host, Brian. And before we get into this week's episode, I have a quick favour to ask. So, over the last three, maybe four weeks, the podcast has been getting hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of downloads from the city of Dallas. And to the best of my knowledge, the podcast has no links to Dallas. I don't think I've ever interviewed a guest from Dallas. So, if you're listening in Dallas right now get in touch tell me how you found a podcast and if you're enjoying it so far maybe what your favorite episode is now the answer to last week's music trivia question was of course zz top after the breakup of british rock band the zombies who scored hits like time of the season a promotion company in america hired some kids from texas to go on tour as the band claiming they were still together. Eventually, the actual zombies served the fake zombies with a cease and desist order. But the fake zombies stayed together and became ZZ Top. And we've got another five-star review. Five stars, love. Music is life. I can relate to this podcast and topic so much. Brian's voice and accent is so soothing. So glad I found you. Keep up the great job. This review was left by Shelley on iTunes. And don't forget, if you leave a five-star review, it will be read out on the show. Now, this week's music trivia question is, which legendary 90s frontman used to clean a dentist's office by day and play with his band at night? He also used to steal nitrous oxide from the dentist's office to fund the band. Now, my guest this week is Todd Smith. Known for such bands as Dog Fashion Disco, Polka Dot Cadaver, Knives Out and El Creepo, just to name a few. This episode has been a long time coming and I'm so glad that you're finally getting to hear it. So, before we get talking to Todd, we're going to take a listen to Dog Fashion Disco's latest single, The Grand Experiment. So, without further ado, let's get on with the show. Shattered my jaw, collapsed my veins Creepy crawlers dig amazing my brain. 
Hey, Todd, you're very welcome to Concerts That Made Us. Hey, buddy. How's it going? I'm pretty good in yourself. Uh, not too shabby. Ah, good, good. I have to say, it looks, uh, looks very sunny and picturesque behind you there. <laughs> yeah, I'm on my back porch. Uh, ah. How much longer it's going to be sunny, but there's lights out here, so we're all good. Um, yeah, man. So it's actually a little chilly for Florida today, but I don't even want to say the temperature because then people are going to be like, chilly. <laughs> we're yeah. Eight feet of snow. Yeah, it's uh, I'd say it's roughly around two or three degrees Celsius now where I am. So it's pretty okay. chilly. Yeah, man. Yeah. So um, you guys have a new album coming out on the 22nd of March. Do you want to tell us a bit about it? Um, the Dog Fashion Disco new album, Cult Classic, um, will be our, our uh, I think the last time we released an album was about six or seven years ago. So this will be the first uh, DFD album on our label, um, which is kind of cool. So, yeah, we're looking forward to everybody um, checking it out and getting some feedback from the fans and whatnot. But so far, um, the first single that we dropped, Grand Experiments, has, has had a, a, a good reaction to it. So um, it's about 90,000 views on YouTube. And I mean, the comments are pretty glowing except for a couple of people, but that's usually <laughs> the course. Yeah. There's always one or two. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Why, uh, why now? Why was the time and right now after six or seven years? Well, I, don't, I mean, it probably would have been sooner if, if not for the pandemic. So that kind of put everybody in a, you know, limbo state for two and a half or whatever years. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, we, we've, we've worked on other projects. Uh, we had a, a side project called Beyond Paranoid come out um, three or four months ago. And this is, too, we usually cycle through the bands. We have way too many bands. So we cycle through um, and uh, it was DFD's turn to, to get a new album. So here yeah. we are. That's a, that's a pretty unique way of doing things as you said cycling through bands how do you keep on top of it all um i mean it's pretty easy you know it's uh, i mean when i say cycle through i mean in all honesty like um you know el creepo which started out as a side project for me but i invited a couple of the guys in to to write and and perform on the albums um that we haven't released an album with El Creepo for probably yeah seven years or something like that. Um, I want to say Polka Dot Cadaver has probably been three or four years since we've released an album. So um, it was definitely time for DFD. Um, I know that we are planning on putting out a, a another Polka Dot Cadaver album in 2023. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, we do have other projects that are prob. I mean, never say never but i don't i don't know if we'll ever do like another knives out album or something like that i i just um i, I don't know the older i get the more i like sh kind of shy away from the super heavy stuff um right. kind of tired of screaming i enjoy sick <laughs> and you know the thing that i always loved about dog fest disco and even el creepo and polka dot cadaver is that pretty much anything goes in those bands they all they each have their own aesthetic, but um, 
you know, we can do anything from Johnny Cash country type songs to heavy metal, um, you know, quirky stuff in, in all three of those projects. So those are probably the ones that we're going to be cycling through over the next several years, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, would I be right in saying you're, uh, you're going down the Taylor Swift kind of route of recording some of your old tracks to get the rights back. You mean Taylor Swift went the dog fashion disco route? Is that what you're yes, saying? That's exactly what I meant. Yeah. Uh, we we did some re-records to to get the the rights back for a couple of the early Dogfest disco albums and um and the first polka dot albums uh it was basically a way that you know obviously those songs and those albums are like our children so we wanted to get custody of the kids you know uh we worked hard to to bring the the little whippersnappers up so we want them uh we want them to be officially ours. Um, I don't know if re-records will continue. Um, you know, vinyl's big now. So that was a lot of the reason why we wanted to do re-records. We kind of wanted to have our, uh, our stuff available on vinyl and just have kind of control over it, you know, um, for whatever reason. Um, I, I know that, uh, maybe the fans and some members of the of the bands are a little burnt out on the re-records, but it was only done just to, like I said, get custody of the kids and and be able to put out vinyls and and do stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I, I get why she did it, and that's pretty much why we did it. So, I could actually see a lot more artists doing it in the future. I think there's going to be an influx of uh, people doing it. I think. Yeah, we we offered our previous labels we offered them money to just own the masters and for dog fashion disco in particular anarchists of good taste and committed to a bright future um the label spitfire that those were on is is now defunct and um we kind of put out the feelers for like who do we talk to to buy the masters and really got nowhere so nice. that was there was there was no other choice really to um to 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 do anything but um re-record and i think and and i know that nostalgia is a big thing with our fans but i think that the, the newer re-records sound light years better really um, it, in my humble opinion they sound modern they sound punchy they sound well produced hmm. um and uh especially anarchists but you know i i'm sure most of our fans would disagree because <laughs> grew up listening to one version that sounds a certain way, even if it's like not sonically the most amazing thing, like you kind of, it's, it's kind of like you grow to love it. So yeah. It has a special place in your heart, I suppose. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And your, was that part of the reason you start your own record label then? Obviously it was, was it? Yeah. Yeah. We just figured, um, I mean, to be quite honest, we can probably we can probably do the same for ourselves as as most smaller labels could do for us. Um, maybe a little less, but it was kind of like why split money and go through the battles with a record label if we could just do it on our own? You know? Yeah. I mean, like we're pretty much a DIY totally operation. So, I mean, for the most part, I book the shows. Um, Jason takes care of a lot of the business odds and ends um we record at a 
at a place in Baltimore that we've recorded there since 2005, um, put out our own albums and basically do whatever we want, you know? Mm. I mean, I can tell you nightmare stories after nightmare stories of, of dealing with the label and their <laughs> ridiculous demands. And um, it's just not, it's not worth it. Mm. So, I mean, now we had a major hunting us down and like they were going to pour a bunch of money into promotion. That would be, uh, that would be a different story, but that ain't going to happen. So, Yeah, I could imagine. I'd say it's a, a bit of a nightmare to be battling with the suits, so to speak, when you have a creative vision and you have some guy in a suit telling you, no, it should be like this or no, do this. Yeah, we never had um, really anybody telling us stylistically what kind of music to write. Right. Um, but it was always like just a battle of like... Um, how it was going to be marketed or like being able to release several singles before the album comes out. And just, you know, just, I, I, I remember it being a nightmare dealing with them, but I don't, I, I think I shut it out of my memory because I just don't want to hold on to that, <laughs> that BS. But um, yeah, it's, it's, there's a big power struggle. Cause you know, those people, like you say, the suits, they, they love to hear themselves talk and and they, you know, it's my way or the highway, but we're kind of like too old to deal with that crap. We'll just, <laughs> stuff. And we, you know, I mean, we're not like a hundred percent, you know, full-time musicians in, in bands, you know, we, we all have our side hustles and, um, and now that COVID I think is hopefully chilling out, we're going to do probably 30 shows over, course of this year so kind of easing back into it um but uh but yeah i mean we we do enough where we don't get tired of it and we can we do enough where it you know scratches the itch of being a creative musician so it's the best of both worlds yeah yeah you found a happy medium so to speak totally yeah yeah so uh we might get into your own history for a bit Uh, if you can can you remember your very first musical memory very first musical memory was probably discovering my mom's vinyl collection where she had some gems in there. It was probably a kiss album. Um, and, uh, I have a picture of her, of, of my mom and I, um, dressed as kiss for Halloween. I was five. So she was a good sport and she had, she had pretty good musical taste. So I would, uh, would, you know, run through the vinyls. And, and then I, I remember distinctly, there was a Michael Jackson phase. And then I would, you know, have a, uh, I came up with my own uh, dance routine to the thrill album. So yeah. um, Started young. Um, And then in my early teens, got a guitar, started to listen. You know, I, my first concert was uh, Motley Crue with White Snake in 1980. Eight, I want to say. Oh man! Uh, and that was the first time I ever smelled weed. I was like, <laughs> "What is that smell? What is that burning, skunky smell?" <laughs> and the the kid I was with, it was it was a the son of of this lady that my father was dating at the time, and he took me and he's like, "Oh, that's weed," and I'm like, "Weed? What's weed?" You know that whole thing. Mm. Anyway, so but that was my first concert experience ever, and I was huge crew fan for yeah. them. Um, and then I kind of graduated on to the, the Metallica's and the Slayers and the Megadeth and a little bit heavier. Mm. 
Mm. Uh, so yeah, it was getting a guitar at 12 and just kind of trying to learn songs from ear or tablature books or whatever. So. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. I'm always amazed or totally jealous when someone tells me their first concert was one of these legendary bands like Motley Crue or Kiss or, you know, yeah. that's a major inter- introduction to concerts. Yeah, man, it, it was, it was wild. It, it was a place in uh, Largo, Maryland called the Capitol Center. It was the, where the Washington Capitals used to, it was a hockey rink, mm. hockey rink arena. And that was the first time that I'd ever experienced something th- th- on that grand of a scale as far as like a live show. And I was just like, my jaw was on the floor the whole time. It was just, it was amazing. I had been listening to, to the crew since, I would say that was the girls, girls, girls tour. And I'd been listening to them since I was probably, I don't know, maybe 83, 84. So by, by the time the concert came around, I was just like over the moon. I was freaking out. It it was amazing. So that's when they were really on all cylinders too. So, yeah, yeah. I'd say so. I have to ask, did you see their movie or the current TV show, Pam and Tommy? I haven't I haven't seen the Pam and Tommy thing and I saw the movie The Dirt and I just thought it was just dumb. I just it, like it, it I don't know what they could have done to make it. I would rather just see like a crew documentary, which I've seen you know 10,000 of them, but I don't know. It's just like it just seemed fake, you know, it's it it didn't resonate with me, man. Yeah. I, I don't and I loved the book, The Dirt. Um, I actually reread that like two months ago. And uh, it definitely doesn't age well in this Me Too PD. <laughs> I wouldn't think so. But uh, it's, yeah, I mean, and I look back on these guys that all the drugs and all the debauchery and all the, all the you know, destroying hotel rooms and everything that they did. And I look back on it now and I'm like, that shit is really stupid. You know, it's like, but you, when you're a young kid, you're like, they're the coolest people on the planet. Blah blah blah. But you look back on it, it just doesn't age well. I, I, I will always love the crew, but, but yeah, it's, um, I was not a fan of that dirt movie. Love the book mm. though. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's kind of a, they're the prime example of when someone who shouldn't gets a lot of money, you know, they yeah. just went wild and just did whatever the hell they wanted. Yeah, totally. I mean, those dudes have been, you know, for all intents and purposes, rich rock stars for almost as long as I've been alive. And it's absolutely astonishing that they're still around. Um, you know, it, even Mick Mars with his his ailment where he's hunched over. And and I mean, I've seen some, some uh, stuff on YouTube from their farewell tour in 2015. And Mick is just a badass. He's such a great guitar player and he's so underrated. Mm. Um, and I mean, the only guy who's, who's really struggling, in my opinion, is Vince these days. But hopefully he gets his act together for their stadium tour. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Because any of the videos that have come out lately of him singing, even that they're, he can't hold the note or he can't get the breathing right or anything. Yeah, he's he's singing like every three words of a, of a, a line and a verse and it. It's a weird thing. He's been doing that for decades, but now it's even worse because 
you know, he's out of shape and, and kind of laboring and breathing and it's just playing the state fair with the giant pot belly. It's uh, yeah, <laughs> not it's the crew a... that I remember. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Jeez. Yeah. But, um, so your next step then you, uh, said you got a guitar, you tried to, you tried to learn Were you surrounded by friends in school who were into the same kind of thing, wanted to be in a band. Yeah, totally. Uh, there was a, uh, like a core group of like the, the, the magician, the musician kids um, that we kind of all, there were some guitar players that were like virtuosos when I was in, you know, ninth grade. And I would just watch these guys and be like, geez, how the, how the hell do you do that? And I was more of a rhythm guy, you know, I was, excuse me, I would skip school, get those tablature books in the mail and just sit there and learn like all of kill them all, all the riffs. And, uh, and I met, uh, DFD's drummer, John at a, at the bus stop at the top of my street. And we started talking about, um, music. And he said he played drums. And I said, I play guitar. And so he, I had a tiny little bedroom and he brought this gigantic red drum set and set up in my bedroom. So there's basically, it was, there was enough room for my uh, half stack guitar amp, his drums and my bed. So you basically, if you wanted to move around the room, you would have to climb over the bed to get out the door. But we would, uh, before my parents got home from work, we would just sit in there and, and rock out and play covers and just jam and stuff like that. And then we met, uh our guitar player the original guitar player greg in dfd um in high school as well and we just kind of put a band together so mm. yeah yeah um what was the uh what was the next step then was it did you wait till after school after high school was finished or we all graduated and then um still kept at it we were playing sh- like local shows um we finalized the, the lineup with, um, Steve Mears playing bass. Um, and I don't even remember where we met him, but anyway, so it was about two years after high school in 95 when we kind of had, I don't think we had the name dog fashion disco yet. I don't think that was until maybe 96, but it was the, the core original members and yeah, we would just, play and write songs and we borrowed i think two thousand dollars from drummer john's parents to make erotic massage the first album Mm. um and that came out in 97 and then we got hooked up with our old manager derek um and he signed us to his super rinky dink label and then got us a deal with Spitfire records. And then that was when we kind of moved into the anarchist phase and committed. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to ask, that must've been the point in your career. Then when you really start feeling like you were making it, things were starting to change, was it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Spitfire originally, um, when we did a showcase up in New York city for the president of Spitfire records, and he was su- a super cool guy. And we had everything go wrong that show, but we kept a cool head. And he goes, the thing that I like about you guys, I think your, your music is good, but that you were professional when shit was going haywire on stage, you know? And we were like, yeah, I mean, you know, we were just trying to keep our shit together. So we didn't look 
idiots. So he ended up signing us and it went, and it initially was going, I mean, I remember we had like a $10,000 wardrobe budget and we had tour support and we had uh, a a fair amount of promotion. Um, They flew us over to England and we played some, some shit. I think we did, you know, a dozen shows. So that was, uh, that was really cool. And the, the president ended up leaving after the anarchist album and the new suit that they got in there could give two shits about us. So that's kind of just, you know, it fizzled uh, out. Yeah. Jeez. So it's crazy how it can go like that though, just because one person changes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's if you don't have the head honcho, like if he doesn't have your back, then, you know, you're, you're pretty much shit out of luck. So yeah. Unfortunately, he left. I think if we would have had another, you know, significant push on committed, it really would have, we would have gone to another level that we've, we've really never gone to before. I mean, we've always been a pretty much a dive bar underground band. And, and it's a lot of people will say, I don't understand how you guys aren't bigger. And I'm like, yeah, I don't get it either. But if you need to have a certain amount of luck, and you need to have a team behind you mm. to really propel you into into like a, a bigger status. Like if if System of a Down would have had our label and our manager and our booking agent, they never would have been System of a Big <laughs> System. Of Down. You know, it's just yeah. you need a team behind you. We never had the killer team. So, um, but it is what it is. I mean, it's we we definitely have fans that are dedicated and we have a hell of a lot of fun making albums and playing shows so all of our peers that were in bands growing up are all they're not they don't even play music anymore you know so it's like for whatever reason stupidity or stubbornness we've stood the test of time and and um it's a a very rewarding part of my life so i you know i i'm thankful for for everything we have so yeah, yeah. I have to ask, what are the crowds and fans like tour in England compared to the States? Um, I, I, there's people are a lot friendlier over there. Um, I think we did, uh, I, there's a, a bar in London called the Barfly, and we played there probably seven or eight years ago, some, something like that, anyway, maybe nine years ago. And, um, we sold it out three nights in a row and there were literally people from the middle East, Russia, all over Europe. It was insane. It was like the nations of concert goers that, that there's the guys like I'm from Iraq and I'm like, how have you heard of our band in Iraq? And, you know, people from Russia and, and all over Europe and, and whatnot, Australia. And, um, so uh, and not to say that, that the, the fans in America are uh, rude or anything, but people over there are just, I don't know, they're just so like super, super friendly and very gracious and, you know, um, mm. they're just pleasant. They're very pleasant to be around. Um, I would say that Americans may be a little more rough around the edges, um, which is fine. You know, I'm, I'm a bit rough around the edges. <laughs> It's all good. Um, but yeah, yeah, we had, we had, uh, we did a tour with Psycho Stick over there. Um, and that was good too. Um, some, we played some, some really good shows. And 
yeah, it's always fun going over the pond. Yeah, yeah. I'm a bit surprised about by that now because uh, over this side, at least, we'd have the opinion that everyone in America is super, super over friendly almost. And in England and here, we can be a little ruder. So it's funny that it's reversed for you guys. Yeah, I don't know if it's just a, if we, maybe if we were a, a British band, we would, we would feel the same way about our homeland. You know, I don't, maybe, I, yeah. I don't, I mean, for the most part, everyone we, we play for and come in contact with that are fans are just wonderful people. So, um, but I, I don't know. It, it, it just struck me that people over in England and, and all throughout the UK were just super, super friendly and kind of shy and uh, a little more reserved where you'd have to, after you introduce, yeah, Hey, uh, good to meet you, Bob. And then, and then Bob w- would just kind of stare. <laughs> and I'm like, so what's going on, Bob? You know, we're mm-hmm. over here. People are like just motor mouths and, and uh, you know, I guess a little more comfortable, but who knows? Yeah. Who yeah. Knows? <laughs> so how do you approach being a musician and being in a band nowadays compared to when you first started? Well, we definitely know how to turn a profit now, <laughs> which back then um, we were clueless about. Um, not to say that we're, you know, living high on the hog or anything, but, you know, we've been able to turn a profit where we can each, you know, make some some money along with a side hustle and then keep our record label, you know, chugging along. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's definitely not cheap to make an album or put on a pre-order or, you know, duplicate vinyls or any of that stuff. So, um, we've just learned what to do and what not to do. Uh, you know, a big thing is, um, back in the day, we didn't have a really good handle on like, like merchandise, like t-shirts and stuff like that. We probably had, you know, two t-shirts, but if you see us play now, like our merch guy, Tony, God bless his heart he literally has to set up like two or three tables and then behind him are probably 24 shirts, you know, (laughs) like everything on the merch table is it's, it's 25. Let's see. It's about 25 years of stuff that, you know, albums and we have everything from flasks to belt buckles, to shirts, to sweatshirts, to, CDs, vinyls, I mean, everything under the sun, hot sauces. Um, so it, it's, that's definitely, we've kind of, we, our merch game is pretty strong. Um, and also we've, we've learned how to really get in and out of the studio with what I think is a solid, uh, product, um, a solid album in just enough time when back in the day, we would record an album for three months, four months in the budgets back then. I remember Spitfire ponying up to the guy who recorded our um, album, Anarchist of Good Taste. I think Spitfire ponied up almost $30,000 for that album. That's back, that's 2000 money. <laughs> so who knows what, is that fit maybe 50 grand now? So, um, we've been working at right way studios since 2005 and we, um, we have the luxury of, uh, 
a couple of the guys, Jason and Tim, can record stuff at home on their computer. Um, I get my ducks in a row, so I'm I'm in there and out of there singing a full album's worth of vocals in three days. So Jeez. it's just really streamlined, organized, and we get in there and we get out of there. Um, usually the, the longest process is mixing the album, you know, because mm. there's five people that are, you know, painstakingly critiquing every little thing. So all those notes get sent back to the engineer, Steve, and he's got to try to please everybody. But yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we just, you know, it's, it's normal stuff when you're, when you're young and starting out, all you care about is like drinking beer and getting laid and playing music. <laughs> now it's, it's, it's a bit of a business, you know, and it has been that way for, for 10 years. I mean, the, you know, once we started the label and kind of took all power into our hands, um, we just learn from our mistakes and you, you make the right moves, you know? So. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, the side of it. I suppose people don't get exposed to too much the fans anyway you know it's all the sex drugs rock and roll lifestyle but no one really thinks about the business and the hard work and the boring stuff behind the scenes you know yeah man i mean there i mean and it's been a labor of love but we've sacrificed so much time to you know to even achieve to this level you know i mean especially like once dfd went on hiatus in 2007, Jason and I started Polkadot Cadaver and we went pretty full steam ahead. I mean, we had some tours where, you know, we were gone for upwards of two months at a clip. And I remember one time we were, I think we were touring with this uh, folk metal band, Corpaclani. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. No. And we started, the tour went from East coast to west coast canada in january oh so the day before we were supposed to start that tour I, I i don't remember where we crossed over the border i get maybe new york state or something and it was we and we always sleep in the van because if you you know you spend a little over a hundred dollars every night getting a hotel room by the end of the tour and you spent a, a, a ton of money on on hotels when it could have gone Here's your cut. Here's your cut. Here's your cut at the end of the tour. So, so we ended up sleeping in January in upstate New York and um, woke up in the morning. <laughs> it was so cold that we had to scrape off the inside of the windows to see out. So it's just stuff, stuff like that. I mean, talk about paying your dues. I don't think there's any other band who's paid their dues like, like us dudes have. So Jeez. Um, I can tell you road stories where it was like feast or famine. I mean, just like, just, you know, you, you have $5 to spend a day. Um, oh, man. you don't, you go for two and a half weeks without showering, um, <laughs> sleeping in the van. One guy's in the front seat, like with it, you know, cocked back a little bit reclined and, yeah. uh, it, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's an adventure. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> Oh, you must have got some shock though waking up to all the ice on the inside of the van. Are you sure yeah. like that didn't put you off not getting a hotel in future? Yeah, I mean, we just, you know, you just, you deal with it, you know? Mm. Um, I, I I don't even remember if we got any rooms on that uh, on that tour. Um, but we thankfully know enough people uh, around the States and also 
Canada where we can kind of like, uh, you know, hit the couch or the spare bedroom at their house and take a shower. So nowadays it's, it's usually, and, and actually nowadays every three or four days we'll get a motel room if we have, you know, if we don't have a fan's house to stay at or something. So, yeah. Yeah. Now we're living large. <laughs> <laughs> Lifestyle of luxury, huh? Oh, buddy, you have no idea. So um, what would you say over the years has been your best concert or best concert experience? Wow. Well, when we we did a mini tour with System of a Down, mm. and that was the most people I've ever played in front of. Um, I remember the first night, it was, I think it was a place called the Boathouse. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it was in Virginia. And there were thousands of, upon thousands of people in front of us. It was a sea of heads. <laughs> and um, I was, we were all like kind of shitting our pants to go on stage and like, <laughs> you know, in front of System of a Down's crowd and, and do our thing. Mm. And it was going great until our guitar player, Greg, at the time, he, we were playing so loud that his, I don't know if he didn't push in the, the cable going to his speaker cabinet all the way, but anyway, it <laughs> jiggled and vibrated and came out. And his guitar went out like, oh, and man. we were doing great. People were into it. Like, you yeah. know, it, it was a good response. So that killed all the momentum while he was dicking around with his amp <laughs> to figure out why it's not making sound anymore. Um, but we ended up doing four or five more shows and, uh, and uh, it was great, man. It, if we could have done like a legitimate proper tour with system of a down where we did, you know, maybe 30 or 40 dates, that would have been a huge game changer for us. Yeah. Um, but it was cool. That, that was a great experience. Um, the first tour that we ever like legit tour that we ever did was with a band called nothing face. And that was the first time we really got out in front of larger crowds. Uh, mm. those were great shows. Um, yeah, I mean, we've done, we did a tour with Mindless Self-Indulgence. Those were huge shows that we had a lot of fun. Um, it was insanity personified, but so we've, we've definitely had some, some great touring times. Um, I don't know if, if one sticks out more so than the other, but like the, the, the tours that I just mentioned, those were highlights. Definitely. Um, yeah. We uh, we played the after party at Barbecue and um, uh, Jella Biafra from the Dead Kennedys was at our show. Oh, man. And I uh, said, hey, man, we play a holiday in Cambodia um, like pretty much every night. And I said, "Would is there any way you'd want to sing it with us tonight? And he was like, no, no, no. I think I'm just going to watch the show. And like literally 20 minutes before we went on stage, I go, any second thoughts? is there any way you want? And he goes, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, I'll do it. So oh. we, there's a video on YouTube. It's Polka Dot Cadaver with Jello Biafra doing a holiday. But yeah, that was a highlight. That was pretty yeah. damn cool. Jesus. When things like that start to happen to us, uh, it's real pinch me moments. Totally. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. While it's happening, you're like, this is fucking cool. man." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Jesus. Do you, um, do you prefer nowadays, do you prefer the large audiences or do you prefer to stick to smaller crowds? 
Well, I mean, we're an underground band, so we play for, in the grand scheme of the music business, smaller crowds. I mean, um, I, I prefer to have like a two or 300 cap uh, bar or dive bar club, whatever you want to call it. I would rather have that packed or half packed than a lot of bands will be like, oh man, yeah, we're playing the Enormo Dome and they draw like 75 people and it's like 80% empty, but they're like, this place is so cool, man. We got like a deli tray and the sound is amazing. I would rather play the small punk rock club and have it packed right out. Even if the PA will only handle one microphone and the kick drum being mic'd, you know, Mm. I would, I just like that small intimate energy within a small little 200 cap uh, club than you know, anything bigger than that. I mean, obviously if we're doing a support tour with a bigger band, you know, and it's packed, then yeah, bigger clubs are great. But um, yeah, I just like that. We got a, like kind of a, like a, a punk rock ethos to us where just small, dingy, packed little place, a lot of energy, spit flying, you know, beer, it's like stale beer and pit (laughs) and, that's just kind of where we feel comfortable. So <laughs> that's a, a sentence I didn't think I'd ever hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the truth, man. Yeah, yeah. But um, I see what you mean, though. You know, it's it's easier to connect with people or people in the smaller crowds, and totally. Totally. you know that exchange of energy, and it's all about audience engagement as well. It's hard to see the faces of people in a sea of faces, you know. Yeah. And I think, I think we, our music and just what we do works better in a small environment where it's more of an intimate exchange of energy going in a circle. Um, you know, me putting the mic out and letting people sing parts and like, you know, just that small kind of, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen like punk shows, uh, on YouTube from like CBGBs like that, Mm. That kind of vibe, you know, it's just, just energy, people moving, people feeling the music. Um, and then I've played, I've, I mean, I've played bigger shows. Like we played with Disturbed of all bands uh, for a couple. <laughs> and we played a place called the 930 Club in Washington, D.C. And there was, I mean, there were, it was sold out. There was 2,000 people in front of us. And it was fun and everything, but it's just like, it's a good opportunity maybe to gain some new fans, but I would much rather play with, you know, whatever band in a tiny little club and just, that's where we feel comfortable. That's where I feel comfortable. Um, Mm. So, yeah, I mean, uh, that's kind of the vibe that we dig. So. Yeah. Yeah. Your sound. I have to, I have to ask, you've probably been asked it before, but there's, probably nobody to actually sound like you guys it's so different and a bit i suppose you could describe it as weird as well it's just it's very unique how did you come up with it was it something that just happened naturally or was it a conscious decision well we were back in the day it there were like three bands that we were way into or maybe four it was faith no more it was mr bungle it was clutch and it was the mighty, mighty Boston's. Hmm. And 
if you put those four bands together, it kind of makes sense that DFD sounds the way it does. Um, I think we still get a lot of bungle comparisons because there aren't too many bands who are kind of like avant-garde weird stuff with horns. So, and people love to go, well, this sounds like this. Well, they must be ripping them off, you know? And it's Mm -hmm. like, I mean, we've been doing this for 25 years and probably back in 20 years ago, yeah, we, I mean, what musician doesn't rip off their idols, you know? True. Um, so that's just kind of par for the course. Um, but when we were incorporating horns, that was Mighty Mighty Boston's. We had a ska element. We had a heavier, uh, angry element that was old clutch seeping in. Then we had a lot of dynamics and twists and turns. That was Faith No More and Bungle. That was kind of like the those were the staples of our musical direction that we kind of ended up going in. Yeah. 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 I can see it now when it's like an amalgamation of those guys, but still you, you may have taken your influences, but it is still very unique, you know? Well, I appreciate you saying that. I I feel it it is as well. Um, Especially uh, in the past 10 years. I mean, I think we've carved out a nice little musical niche that is pretty much our own. You know, I mean, Mm. um, I feel, I feel proud of what we've accomplished and, and what we've grown into as musicians. Um, I mean, I, I would put our, our tunes and our albums up to, you know, any one of the, our contemporaries that are on a huge global status. I mean, like I said, we we never had the team, but we definitely got the tunes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So we spoke about your best concert experiences. Is there a worst concert or worst concert experience you've had? Oh, uh, let's see. <laughs> we, we did a tour with, uh, well, I mean, some of the worst concert experiences we've had were the ones where there was no one there. I remember the first time we played Austin, Texas. Um, this was probably 2002, maybe 2003. And literally it was the sound guy, the bartender and one dude in front of oh, us. Man. And the, place, <laughs> the place would probably fit 800 people. <laughs> and the guy's like, Hey man, there's one guy here to see you. Um, I don't know how long you guys are planning on playing, but we could just pay you and all go home early. <laughs> and we were like, well, what about our dude? What about our guy who's here? Um, so we ended up playing like, I don't know, eight or nine songs for that guy. And then we were like, all right, this is ridiculous. Uh, but uh, those are always a bummer. Um, that doesn't happen anymore. Um you know, even in our weakest markets, we could put a decent amount of people in, in a club. But um, mm. but uh, we did a uh, we did a tour with uh, Twisted, the Juggalo band, and mm. uh, started in Mesa, Arizona, and ended in Mesa, Arizona. Um, I, I mean, they were throwing anything they could find at us, beer bottles. I remember seeing people in the front row lighting quarters with a lighter. So they get like hot and then throwing them at us, (laughs) hit your skin. And, um, 
that was a pretty rough experience. Um, so that it, unfortunately we drove from Maryland, excuse me, all the way to Arizona, Ugh. played that show. And then that was it. <laughs> and drove all the way home. Um, let's see. Uh, I remember we were on that Corpaclani tour uh, with Polkadot and this guy, <laughs> they're like folk metal and uh, which is really not my cup of tea, but we were covering Billie Jean from Michael Jackson at that point, And it sent this guy overboard. He <laughs> wanted to kill us. He oh. like <laughs> us all to our merch booth and was like in our face and shit. We're like, dude, we just played a Michael Jackson on calm down. Like it's all good. But yeah, I mean, for the most part, man, you know, we have good shows there. There have been some clunkers in the past, but um, usually crowds, if they're not into you, um, will just kind of stand there, you know, stand there with a deadpan face and um, they won't throw projectiles at you, but that, that has definitely happened a few times. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I suppose you get the odd one or two that are like that. Yeah, I think I think most bands ha- have received that kind of treatment. I remember going to see um, it was a it was called the Snowcore Tour, and it was Mr. Bungle, uh, a band called Puya, and System of a Down. And System of a Down people didn't want to hear note one from Mr. Bungle. Heckled them the entire time, <laughs> right. um, but they were giving it back as as good as they were getting it. So it was kind of it was amusing. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it happens to the best of us. So. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, what would you say is the craziest experience you've had overall since your career started? Well, we, before we got signed, um, there was a cable show, I think it was on like the USA network or something. It was a show called farm club. Do you remember that? The name sounds familiar. All right. Yeah. It's, it was basically, it was hosted by Matt Pinfield and this guy, I think her name is Allie Landry. She was like the hot chick in the Doritos commercials like 20 years ago. <laughs> um, and um, there was a segment on the show where they would find an undiscovered band that's not signed from around the country. And I guess your fans would vote on it. Well, anyway, long story short, we got voted to be on this TV show. Yeah, it was in like, I think it was in like 2000. So I'm in my early 20s. Um, I don't even know at that point if we'd ever actually I had been to California once at that point, but it was my second time to California. They flew us first class to California, picked us up uh, to go do the show in a limo. And we went and um, got hair and makeup done. And uh and we played uh, our song Leper Friend on the show in Hollywood. And the other bands on the bill were Bone Thugs in Harmony hmm. and Stone Temple Pilots. Jesus. So that was, and I remember being backstage and, and having Scott Weiland is walking by me and I said to him, Hey man, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to bother you. I'm such a huge fan. I, I love your voice. I love your lyrics. You're such a ma- major influence on me. And I said, the line that you say, uh, I forget the, the name's escaping me of the song right now, but if uh, met, uh, 
still remains is the song. He says, if you should die before me, ask if you can bring a friend. And I told him that that's one of the most amazing lyrics I've ever heard. And I, I just love STP, blah, blah, blah. And he opened up like a book just about how that was about his first wife. And he was very humble and sweet. And that was a moment I really cherish to this day. He passed away on my birthday like seven years ago. Um, but we ended up talking with the rest of the guys in, in Stone Temple Pilots. And it was uh, it was just an amazing experience. Um, we had never kind of had anything like that happen to us where we like really rubbed elbows and played a show with like some legit artists um, mm-hmm. and got the royal treatment while, while we were at it. So that was a very cool uh, experience. Yeah. Jeez. I actually, I wasn't expecting it to go like that. Normally when you hear a story starting off like that, like you met some superstar singer backstage, you expect that they're going to be a bit of a, a dick, but Jesus, that no, he couldn't have been sweeter um, and more down to earth. Um, yeah. It, it's just, he, he's a tragic character. Um, but I definitely, you know, there have been moments like that in our experience being a musician that even though we're not the biggest band on the planet or selling out, you know, arenas or selling a million albums, like we've got to experience some cool shit. And I'm very <laughs> thankful for it. I don't take any of it for granted. So, yeah. Yeah. And, um, we might as well move on to the future. What does the future? I know the album is coming out in March. What does the rest of the year hold for you? Uh, let's see. We we have a um, DFD uh, keyboard player. Tim is having trouble uh, getting away from responsibilities and obligations back home where he lives just south of Chicago. So we're going to do uh dfd weekend where we basically set a destination and all our our fans from far and wide kind of like travel and we make a weekend of it we're doing one of those in chesapeake virginia um may uh 27th and 28th then the next month we're going to do a polka dot tour that starts in brooklyn and uh goes for about two and a half weeks to denver um so that'll be the first time we've been on tour in you know three years um, so that'll be fun. Then we're in August, we're doing another DFD weekend south of Chicago, uh, in Bradley, Illinois, in the middle of nowhere at this really fun place called the Looney bin that our friend. Knows. Um, so we're going to do a weekend there. Um, we have the new DFD coming out March 12th, um, which we're really psyched about. Then in September, uh, I'm trying to book a, a tour from, from like say Denver and West. So go through Texas, Arizona, then up the West coast. Um, just trying to pretty much trying to cover all of the States with the two tours that we're doing with Polka Dot. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the plan right now. Just kind of easing back into touring and because Tim's got stuff to do, we figure, Hey, let's take Polka Dot out, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So we'll, we'll probably do, I don't know. 25, 30 shows over the year with Polka Dot all around the States. And then next year, buckle down um, and, and write a new Polka Dot Cadaver album and then do some more shows. And yeah, mm. same old, same old thing, man. Brilliant, brilliant. Any plans for overseas in the distant future? Nothing 
that we've really discussed. I mean, I would love to, uh, I would love to go overseas and do like even a, even a smaller, like two week, maybe start in the UK and, and venture into Europe kind of tour. Um, that yeah. would be great. I mean, I've, I've been all throughout the UK. I've been, um, to France, but I, I haven't ventured out into, uh, other parts of Europe, which I, I absolutely love to do. Um, mm. I don't see why that couldn't happen. It's just a matter of, uh, of, of making it happen. Like we, I, I book the shows for the band um, in the States. We would probably have to find a, you know, a, a, a legit booking agent to book us over there. And I would love to go over there with like maybe a band who's from Europe or a band that, from the States that has a, you know, a decent following in Europe and just tag yeah. along. Even if it was a break, even venture, I get a, you know, I get a free vacation to go play <laughs> rock and roll in, in Europe. I'm all yeah. about it. So I, I would love it, man. It's, it's something that we have to do. It's just, it's just a matter of when there's a, there's a lot of ducks that need to be lined up for that. To Yeah. Yeah. You have to make sure everyone is on the same page and able to go and everything Absolutely. works out. Yeah, man. Definitely. Yeah. So, um, We'll move on to the last couple of questions. Nobody gets off the podcast, I'm afraid, without answering these. Okay. So if you could see any performer from history in concert for one night only, who would it be? Wow. There's so many. Hmm. Um, hmm. That's tough. It's tough to narrow it down. I would... Uh, Oof. I mean, it's tough. It's tough to, I would love to see the original Beatles like yeah. do their thing, you know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Hendrix, you know, like um original Zeppelin. I mean, there's so many, you know. Uh Queen. Yeah. You know? Uh I mean, that's just a, a to name a few right there. So yeah, I oh. think I uh, I pro- probably would have been easier if I had have asked you for, uh, for one festival only, maybe. Oh, festival. You could pick a lot. You could pick all them bands to play at the festival. So. Yeah, I, I would. I went to the uh, 25th anniversary of Woodstock in like 90 or uh, yeah, it was 94, the year after I graduated high school. Yeah. And uh, that was that was a hell of a lineup, man. It was it was before the Limp Bizkit debacle years where there was fire bonfires and rape going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was I mean, I there were so many. It was Blind Melon, Henry Rollins, Nine Inch Nails, Green Day, Metallica. I think the Chili Peppers were there. Uh, it was just. Oh, man. The biggest bands in the world were there that that weekend. Yeah. Um but I would have loved to have gone to the original Woodstock. Yeah. That would have been a trip. Um, although it probably would have been a nightmare <laughs> because, uh, I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen documentaries on the original Woodstock, but it was like, I mean, you know, it was, it was, it was absolutely chaos. Um, mm. But I definitely can identify with the hippie mindset. Mm. Uh, a lot. I, I like to think that I'm kind of a hippie that was born in the wrong generation, but um, that would be cool. Woodstock. Definitely. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Definitely. The, uh, the next one. So if you could be locked in a room with any performer from history for 24 hours, who 
who would it be? Wow. That's a question right there. Um, hmm. For, are we talking dead or alive or what? It can be dead or alive. Okay. Uh, I would probably say Paul McCartney. There's something so fascinating about not only because he's a legend, because he's the singer, bass player, one of the, what I consider the greatest bands of all time. Um, there is something so meditative about listening to him being interviewed. And I would love to just sit down maybe with in a 24 hour period, some tacos and some red wine and just pick his brain and, and ask him stuff about his life. I mean, pretty fascinating character. Um, yeah. So yeah. There, there's no one bigger in the world, you know, and there's no one more legendary in the world than that guy. Um, I think, uh, I think that that'd be a trip to kind of like just hang and, and yeah, he's, he's one of those people. Um, you always think about, wow, that, you know, a lot of our idols and people that we revered growing up, they're getting old and they're not yeah. going to last forever. And that will be one guy that I'll be devastated when he passes away. Um, Cause I just love him. I mean, he's so humble. He's funny as hell in interviews. He's so down to earth. Um, he's got a great attitude and he's a brilliant musician. So, I mean, what more could you ask for? Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually delighted you picked him because, uh, I hear John Lennon a lot, but for me, Paul would be my favorite Beatle. And it's like you said, he saw down to earth. He actually seems like the nicest man in show, show business. But totally. The way he acts, you wouldn't think he was a member of the Beatles or he has this big, long history. It hasn't like changed who he is one bit, you know? I could more. Absolutely. And that's what I love about him. You know, it's like a guy who could be a stuck up prick is one of the nicest people that you could ever encounter. I mean, granted, I don't know him. It may all be an act, but I really don't think it is because <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, I see him in interviews and I I'm a big Howard Stern fan and, and I have caught on YouTube Howard interviewing Paul McCartney and he's funny, man, in his own McCartney way. He is hilarious. Um, I just love his dry sense of humor and just his, his whole vibe. I'm I'm glued to the TV if he's interviewed. Um, it's yeah. just I find him fascinating and I find him to be a really good human being. So um, I, I enjoy uh, anything Paul McCartney. Yeah, yeah, me too, me too. And the final one: if there was a song to appear on the soundtrack to your life, what would it be? Oh, geez, goodness gracious. Well, considering we have about 230 songs, <laughs> let me narrow it down to one. Um, I have a strong emotional connection to the song Lock the World Outside. Okay. Um, it's an El Creepa song that's on the uh, Aloha album. Um, and not to get too personal or anything, but it's, it's a very, uh, it's, it's from the heart. It speaks to maybe bouts of depression where you just kind of want to be alone and you find being around people to be draining your battery instead of, 
you know, mm. recharging it. Yeah. Um, so I really, I love that song. And I think it's a good representation maybe of what we are capable of um, lyrically, stylistically, musically. So yeah, I'll pick that one. Why the hell not?
What's up everyone, my name is DJ JC and I'm one of the DJs over at Super Cool Radio. I host a one hour metal show called The Brutal Block. We have new episodes every Tuesday dropping at noon. So if heavy metal music is something that you're into, then make your way over to The Brutal Block. Throw up the horns and let's get rocking. Hey guys, I really hope you enjoyed this show. If you did, rate and review us on iTunes. Really helps the show grow. You can find us on social media at Concerts That Made Us Podcast. And be sure to check out our website at www.concertsthatmadeus.com. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so by signing up at patreon.com forward slash concerts that made us. We've got three tiers available. If that's something you're interested in, you'll get access to a private Discord, exclusive uncut video versions of the podcast, early access to ad-free versions of the episodes, and much, much more. So, until next time, keep rocking. Hey. Hey, what are you guys still doing there? The show's over. It's over. You can go home. Go on. We'll see you next time. We'll be here. Bye.